Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning, and it's a very big privilege of mine to be able to speak here today. I thank Katie for her introduction earlier. I was out of town last week, but really enjoyed being able to tune in online to hear her preach last week and what a wonderful message she brought and always brings. And I'm very thankful for uh, this church. It's meant a great deal uh, to me uh, my entire life. Um, as a four-month-old, I was actually dedicated here in this church on Mother's Day in 1976, which is also Dr. Charles Wade's first Sunday here. Uh, my extended family has always uh, attended here as well. My mother growing up was the pianist, and so my dad, sister, brother, and I would sit in the very front row every Sunday. Uh, my grandparents, Don and the Goodyear, would sit right over here, and my other grandparents, George and Jean Hawks, would sit back in the back over there. So this has always been church to me, but it's also been family. Um, when I was eight, I was baptized here in this sanctuary. And a few years later, when I was in the youth group, a girl named Jessica Jordan began attending here. And she also was baptized in this sanctuary. A few years after that, at Baylor, we began dating. It took me a while. Um, and then we were engaged and then married here in this sanctuary. Um, I was ordained as a minister here as well in this sanctuary and served in various churches after that. First of all, at a Webb Baptist Church in South Arlington while I was receiving my Master's of Divinity at Biblical Languages from Southwestern, then to Seminole Heights Baptist Church in Tampa, Florida, where our oldest son, Grant, was born. And then back to Arlington, I served for a while at First United Methodist Church just up the road. And I served at FUMC while working on my PhD in religion, politics, and society down at Baylor University. So when I was called to FUMC, many folks here at First Baptist jokingly said that I was going there as a missionary. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, the folks at FUMC received me as an escapee. And so we thoroughly enjoyed our time there at FUMC and when I was hired as a professor in political science at Dallas Baptist University, where I've been for 14 years now teaching political science. Um, I was the dean of the College of, of Humanities and Social Sciences for a while, directed the PhD program, now currently serves the dean of the Cook School of Leadership. We moved back here to First Baptist. Along the way now, four out of our five kids have been dedicated here in this sanctuary, and all five I've had the privilege of baptizing here in this sanctuary. So in our family of seven, 100% of us baptized right here. Additionally, we've had funeral services here for family members and other events, and I've been also ordained as a deacon here along with many other ex experiences. So this is a very special place to us. And so to be asked to preach today um, is a high honor for me and one that I do not take lightly. I pray that what I share today may allow our hearts, our minds, our souls to grow closer to God, to be better servants of Him and of our society. In fact, that's the same prayer that I pray for my undergrad students in my political science classes. Um, additionally, I've begun in those undergrad classes at the end of each class period to, to read or recite together a different benediction. And on Mondays, we recite the Apostles' Creed to humble us and to remind our students and ourselves that our faith didn't start here with us. That's preceded us by generations and generations and generations. And on Wednesdays, we read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 to remind my government students that our attitude should be that of Christ, 
who emptied himself, served others, made himself nothing? And what if we approached our politics like that? And on Fridays, it's the benediction of Jude, complete with mainly sticking to Dr. Wade's translation of that passage that he would preach or say every Sunday as he walked down the aisle at the end of the service. Because whether we're here on Sunday or in the classroom or at work on Monday, whether we're worshiping together with each other, worshiping while we serve the least of these, how we treat our neighbor, how we welcome the stranger, how we stand up for the oppressed, we do it all in the name of Christ, who, as Jude says, can keep us from falling and present us without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. So if we believe that, I think we should live like that. And so these three benedictions inform um, my approach to this message today as well. So Dr. Wiles assigned the text to Ecclesiastes today and also titled the message, Good Governments, which you might be thinking, isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> and it is. For, it's, it's, it doesn't always go together. And so we'll discuss that today because while it may be an oxymoron, I'm willing to say we need to explore what that looks like based on the text assigned. Further, Dr. Wiles asked me to connect this message to religious liberty. Simple topic. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier my PhD is from Baylor University in religion, politics, and society. Religion, politics, and society all mashed together. Um, it's a good thing we all agree on those topics. <laughs> We're always engaging in rational discussions on these topics, calmly listening, having nuanced understandings, um, being compassionate, calm, learning from each other, because we're thinking, I may not have it all figured out. <laughs> well, a lot of ways we've lost the ability to do that, and I would say that that's partly because we've muddied the waters of religious liberty, of separation of church and state, of recognizing just authority, of desiring moral character, of accepting limited efficacy of government, and of misplacing importance on politics. For many, politics has become a kind of religion. So we'll spend a few minutes discussing that, and because these are such trying waters, I've decided to, uh, for clarity's sake, uh, to read from my transcript so that I'm not unclear. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. I'm actually gonna read this passage from the message because I think it better captures the meaning of the text than some of the other translations. So here it is. Unlucky the land whose king is a young pup and whose princes party all night. Lucky the land whose king is mature where the princes behave themselves and don't drink themselves silly. I just arrived in a town late Friday night from spending the past week in Washington, D.C. Um, with 25 Ph.D. and EDD students from Dallas Baptist University. It's my favorite educational experience every year, getting to take a group of doctoral students to D.C., where we discuss political and organizational leadership in D.C. Um, I fell in love with D.C. in 1993 as a junior in high school when I was privileged to travel with a high school group 
uh, to D.C., and we actually got to see the inauguration of Bill Clinton. And I distinctly remember marveling at our system of government at that time, where we got to witness the inauguration. Because as the ceremony began, George H.W. Bush was there, President of the United States, Commander-in-Chief, Leader of the Free World, and he had just lost a very difficult re-election to Bill Clinton, also on the stage there, ready to take the oath. And as Clinton stepped forward to take the oath, the Chief Justice welcomed him and said, are you ready to take the oath, Governor? And then upon completion said, congratulations, Mr. President. At that moment, that one statement, George H.W. Bush, standing right there, is now Citizen Bush. And Clinton at that moment became President, Commander-in-Chief, Leader of the Free World. Former President Bush peacefully flew away on a helicopter. President Clinton got in the motorcade and rode down to the White House. No shots fired, no bloodshed. I can remember as a junior that being very impressionable upon me as something that I never have wanted to take for granted since. There are not many places in the world and not many times in history where things like that happen. And that is why um, we're going to talk about this today. And, and, and we wonder how have we managed at times easily and at other times much more difficultly to maintain this stability? And why is it in recent years seeming more difficult to maintain that stability? On our trips to D.C., our group is, is privileged to receive a private tour of the Capitol from someone who's become a friend of mine who works for the Capitol Police. He's been there for 30 years. He has seen it all. Um, and on our tour, he always allows us to pause and get some water and take a break right in front of a statue of Roger Williams, which I think we have a picture of up here. But in, 19, in 16, he's the guy on the left. We'll talk about Thomas Jefferson in a second. He's the guy on the right. But Roger Williams, in 1639, Roger Williams founded the first Baptist Church of America in Providence, Rhode Island. But prior to that, Williams, at the age of 28, began as a Puritan pastor in Boston. However, after only four years, Williams was banished from Massachusetts because while the Puritans desired religious freedom for themselves, they didn't tolerate dissent. They didn't really want religious freedom for anyone else. And Williams was a dissenter. He was critical of the Massachusetts colony for the land claim because they had taken it from the Native Americans. He disagreed with how they drove Native Americans from their land. He rejected the notion that the Puritan colony was calling themselves a new Israel. He rejected any nation referring to itself as a Christian nation. He said it neither should nor could be called that. And he rejected the call for a state church and for the use of coercion. He was a big supporter of the freedom of conscience. And he had to leave his home because of that. And he took refuge in the middle of winter with the Narragansett Indians in the snow in what he would describe as his, quote, howling wilderness. But there in his howling wilderness, he developed um, his writings um, and later named that spot Providence. And his faith has impacted how he views and viewed the role of church and state. And he's been influential on our nation as a result. Uh, on the other side, enter Thomas Jefferson about 100 years later. I know you're not coming here for history lesson, but bear with me. Thomas Jefferson, who also advocated for separation church and state, but for different reasons. Jefferson was a deist. 
He was suspicious of clergy. He was a kind of a, a suspicious of organized religion. He denied the divinity of Jesus, and he considered him to simply be a moral teacher. But Jefferson was championed by Baptists at the time because he believed strongly in the separation of church and state. He wrote about a wall of separation between church and state. His philosophy is also greatly influenced and continue to be influential over our country. So both Jefferson and Williams, for different motivations, desired for a separation of church and state. As historian Randall Balmer wrote, he said, quote, despite their radical differences in terms of theology, both Williams and Jefferson agreed on the desirability of religious disestablishment. Williams because he sought to maintain a pure church, and Jefferson because he sought political stability. It has lent political stability by diverting social discontent into the religious sphere and has ensured religious vitality by guaranteeing untrammeled expression in the free marketplace of American religion. So with this historical background, what do we mean when we say good government? And maybe we should back up even before that and ask, what's the point of government? Right? I often ask my students in their classes to list all the ways the government affected their life that day. And they come up with electricity and the water and the roads they drove on, the medicines they took, the loans they have for school, etc. Right? There are many different ways. And those all provide the order for society. And government does that. It's a human institution, but it's a necessary institution. We need authority and structure. And God has given us the grace to do that on our own. But this authority and structure, what we call order, is in constant conflict with our personal freedoms. There's a tension within each of us attempting to balance these two competing interests, societal order and personal freedom. And we each in this room balance that differently. And this is where most of our political disagreements occur, balancing the two competing desires. And most of the time it works out pretty well. Competing interests strive for the win or for the compromise, and we move on. But other issues are more complicated. And if we're not careful, we attach sinister motives to those we disagree with rather than listening to the arguments made. We're polarized, so that's a big part of it. And our polarization leads us to do unchristian things, sometimes while believing we're doing them for Christian purposes. But that's not good government. So getting to the topic, what makes good government? Returning to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Unlucky the land whose king is a young pup and whose princes party all night. Lucky the land whose king is mature, where the princes behave themselves and don't drink themselves silly. First point, uh, good government requires leaders of good character. Here in this passage of Ecclesiastes, the author describes the leader as a young pup or a child that parties all night. And what does the author mean by this? He's talking about the character of the leader here, what to avoid, those who don't have the maturity and wisdom to lead, those lacking in character, those who can't even keep their senses. And he's using the image of child and royalty, but we can understand what is meant by this. The young pup lacks maturity, and wisdom necessary. The immature person here could be either be in age or in demeanor, but here it's clear this individual lacks wisdom. 
And as we've learned this summer, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Um, as Rachel Held Evans wrote, the aim of wisdom literature is to uncover something true about the nature of reality in a way that makes the reader or listener wiser. In the Bible, wisdom is rarely presented as a single decision, belief, or rule, but rather as a way or path that the sojourner must continually discern amid the twists and turns of life. It's an ongoing process to gain wisdom. So what is good character, and how do we view this when living in a pluralistic society that does not require and in fact forbids a religious test to hold office. And regardless of one's faith, all truth is God's truth. So we can see a person's character by looking at their integrity, their compassion for others, the fruits of their lives. Regardless of faith, how does a leader exhibit love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What sort of understanding do they have in promoting justice, mercy, or humility? These are universal values that make for leaders of good character, with the most important quality for a leader being that of humility. Leaders are best when they possess humility. Young pups here are still learning humility. Those who party all night or celebrate at the wrong times lack the humility, maturity, and wisdom. Good government requires good leaders and good leaders must possess good character. Second point, good government requires good followers. The scripture references princes and royalty here, and that's not where we find ourselves in a monarchy today, right? We choose our leaders in government. We have the privilege of voting, supporting, persuading, being involved in the selection of our leaders at all levels of government. But we also have the responsibility of being good followers in a time when we don't just want to question unjust authority, we simply want to question all authority. We have Google at our fingertips. Why didn't you listen to anybody else? I can watch a YouTube video that tells me what I want to hear. Why didn't you listen to you? So we have uh, this, this issue, and actually a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, wrote about this 10 years ago in 2012. Um, he describes our society as consisting of what he said, a mass adversarial cynicism. He, he went on to write, the common assumption is that elites are always hiding something. Public servants are in it for themselves. Those people at the top are nowhere near as smart or as wonderful as pure, all-knowing me. He says, vanity has more to do with rising distrust than anything else. So as we're reading about Ecclesiastes, vanity fits very well into this conversation. And that was written 10 years ago. I would dare say we haven't really improved in that regard these past 10 years. We're in danger in our society of crafting our own little kingdoms with our own little information sources and our own silos that don't require us to follow or submit to others if we don't feel like it. And we can easily convince ourselves that we're right. Again, that's vanity. So what does it mean as a Christian to be a good follower? I always tell my classes that one of the ways you know that God had a good sense of humor is that he placed two parables back to back in the Bible. In Matthew 25, the parable of the talents 
and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Particularly for us here in America in 2022, this is humorous but also instructive. We have two general political philosophies in our society, individualism and communitarianism. The parable of the talents speaks specifically to or directly to that individualism. Each of the servants receives money from their master. The first two work hard individually and double their money and receiving praise. The third one doesn't do anything with it and is condemned. And this speaks to our individualism and the importance of personal responsibility for our actions. But then the very next verse, Jesus discusses the sheep and the goats. He says, I was thirsty, hungry, in prison, naked, homeless, in need, and you gave to me. And he identifies himself with the least of these. And this parable speaks to the importance of community and compassion. In both these parables, Jesus directly addresses his followers. And God places these stories side by side because the gospel is not just an individual gospel or a social gospel. It is a both and gospel. As longtime Baptist and ethicist T.B. Maston wrote, he said, the gospel we preach and teach is not an individual gospel or a social gospel. It is a gospel that knows no limits in its application to life. It is a message for the total man, and hence it is also a message for every aspect of the world in which we live. To be a good follower as a Christian means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to humble ourselves, empty ourselves, be responsible, and serve others in the fullness of the gospel. To serve others means to have an attitude of service that places others above myself, my rights. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described this well when he said, quote, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Another way we can be good followers is to guard against our own tribalistic instincts. Tribalism is our human default, this us versus them mentality. It's part of our sinful nature, our survival of the fittest. And this tribalism is unhealthy for good governments. Our founders knew that, which is why they developed the government the way they did. I won't get into Madison's Federalist Paper number 10. We could spend a whole long time talking about that. Come to class, you'll, you'll get that. But basically, they're writing about this very problem. Because partisanship, factions, tribalism skews reality, and it also impacts the church. So how do we guard against that? Because this is affecting us. To be good followers for us is to be Christ-like, to go beyond tribalism to loving our neighbor, or again, as Dr. King said, to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. We follow with humility and compassion, we follow by living out the fullness of the gospel, placing others before ourselves, expecting more from our leaders as well. The scripture passage here says that princes were partying all night. I think that implies that there were some followers there egging it on, participating in the foolishness because we want to be seen with the prince. So we compromise to be in the presence of power. Good followers must maintain humility, compassion, a sense of justice and separation and balance. Which brings us to our third point. Good government requires church-state separation. One of my family's favorite traditions every year is attending the Arlington Fourth of July Parade. Unfortunately, we missed it this year. We were out of town. 
but every year we're in town, we are there early to get a good spot. And we don't care whether it's raining or hot or whatever. We are going to be there. Okay. It's, it's a big time because it's a great community event. The high school bands, the organizational floats, the various groups, it's just great. Um, my favorite moment occur- occurred a few years ago during the parade. As the various groups came down the road, one group came down, they were named the Atheists for America, something like that. There was a group of atheists celebrating independence. One, as a Baptist, I celebrate that we live in a country that separates church and state and allows for people to worship or not to worship, to believe or not to believe. So I was fully in support of them participating in the parade. It's quite the American moment. But I also liked it because it made the crowd uncomfortable. And I confess, I kind of like awkward situations. (laughs) Many in the crowd didn't know what to do. Clap, cheer, stand there awkwardly. It was, you could feel the awkwardness in the crowd. It was just a, a, a wonderful moment for me. Um, Well, the group directly behind the atheist group was none other than Mission Arlington. And I thought, wow, don't miss this moment because there are not many places in the world where a group like the Atheists for America and a group like Mission Arlington can march in the same parade on equal footing with no fighting. It's beautiful. And that's part of religious liberty, part of separation church and state. There is discomfort there, but there's also celebration of, of freedom there. So one may ask then, well, why, why do we want to advocate for, for this? Well, keeping distinct church and state has been a Baptist distinctive for a really long time, all the way back to the Anabaptists even in Europe. It's waning for some in recent decades and increasingly so in this past decade, And why is that? Well, I think the answer is political power. Some see the shortcut that political power tempts with and want to abandon this principle. But that is to our peril, to the cheapening of our witness and our faith, and the corrosion of stability within our own government. James E. Wood, Jr., a Baptist and renowned church-state scholar, wrote in 1963 the following, For the church to be the church... And the state to be the state requires that the identity of each be clearly maintained. Allegiance to God and allegiance to Caesar are never to be the same. And in fact, suggest always a conflict or tension with which the Christian knows he must live. National loyalty is not the supreme allegiance of man. The very mixing of allegiance to God with patriotism, so characteristic of many of the militant organized movements today crusading under the banner of Americanism, is a dangerous threat to both the freedom of the state and the freedom of the church. He wrote that 50 years ago, but it's still true today. We have a problem today with Christian nationalism, but that threat's not new. It's just a resurgent one that has found room currently within our body politic and in many of our churches to breathe oxygen at this present moment. But here's the truth about Christian nationalism. It's bad for Christians and the nation, and it should be rejected in all forms. As Baptists, we should actually be in the forefront of that rejection. And we do that 
by maintaining our commitment to religious liberty and to the separation of church and state. Because when we allow church and state to become too entwined, the competing interests have difficulty finding compromise. Because of that, it's tempting for those seeking power to use the emotions of religion to try to secure power, and religious individuals easily get caught up in wrapping the cross and the flag and misordering our allegiances. And it's happened time and time and time again. The stability of both the church and the state are threatened when the line between church and state is blurred. When church and state are blurred, we justify, in the name of religion, political actions that we would never would have previously. Consider the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lamented the German church's infatuation and support of Hitler during the rise of the Third Reich and the political protection that Nazism was promising the Christian church in return. He warned his fellow Christians. He said, quote, Christianity has adjusted itself much too easily to the worship of power. It should give much more offense, more shock to the world than it is doing. Christianity should take a much more definite stand for the weak than for the potential moral right of the strong. There during World War II, Bonhoeffer lamented the situations where the princes partied all night, where they made bad leadership decisions coupled with followers, including the church, that went right along with it. As Christians in this country, we have enjoyed and continue to enjoy a great deal of political influence and power. And that taste of political power tempts us to forsake religious liberty principles held by our Baptist forebears. And it's been a temptation that we continue to be warned against, but also one that many continue to ignore because we've erroneously at times determined the outcome of politics impacts our faith. Returning again to James Wood Jr. in 1963, he wrote again, the rising tide of American nationalism, which seeks to express itself in terms of religious faith, would make religion in America a cultural religion or tribal faith. To be a good American and to be a good Christian are not one and the same and can never be. God and religion are not something our nation can possess or which can be contained within our national life. Nor is God some national resource that we can harness or use to serve our national interests. The mere claim of a nation that is on God's side is of no real consequence at all and may actually be more an expression of blasphemy than godliness. Again, Wood wrote that 50 years ago. He could have written it 50 years before that. He could have written it 50 years before that. He could have written it today. It applies to this country. Switch out the countries, put a different name in there. It applies to every country in the world. Our calling as Christians is to be salt and light in this world. There's no doubt that we're to be involved, knowledgeable, engaged with our world, with current events, but we're also called to do so in humility, in love, in demand for justice, and in emptying ourselves. It's a difficult balance. If it were easy, we'd have it all uh, figured out. So the words of Eugene Cho in his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, which if you don't even read the book, just follow the title. 
right? But his words in that book are instructive here and can hopefully become what Christians engaged in politics are known for. He wrote, to some you're too conservative, to others you're too liberal. To be a Christ follower is to remain faithful amid tension. To stay engaged, to remain hopeful, to love anyway, to walk with integrity, to bear witness to the love, mercy, and grace of Christ. This is becoming increasingly difficult, but such is our call as followers of Jesus. It's not merely what we believe, but how we engage. So what do we take from Ecclesiastes? How do we offset the young pup or unprepared mentality? How do we reveal ourselves to be good followers? We need to seek wisdom. Not improper actions, but balance. Not puffed up pride, but humility. And God tells us pretty clearly in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. That's wisdom, that's leadership, that's followership, that's proper balance, and that's what's necessary for a good government. Let's pray. Lord, we are mindful today of the privilege we have to be able to worship in this place freely. Lord, we thank you for that. We recognize that there are many places in the world today where our brothers and sisters in Christ don't have this same opportunity. So we pray for them. We pray for their strength. We pray that we may learn from them as well. Lord, help us in our world, in our realms of influence, to be people who seek humility, seek justice, seek mercy. Help us in all that we do to be people who, when they see us, they see your love, your compassion, your grace. We thank you for all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Jack Goodyear for giving up his... Thank you for leading us. And reminding us that no matter where we fall on a political spectrum, that we have one king, and that's Jesus, and that's where our allegiance is. So thank you for that. And so with that, I'd say let's go into the world and follow King Jesus and be his people today. Amen. Be blessed. All the way to the end of the service, thank you, and we're glad that you were with us this morning. Uh, we would like to keep this conversation going, but that's up to you. But if somebody wanted to reach us or find out more information, right. what would they do, Luke? So if you wanted to engage with us, you can go to fbca.org slash hello. There's a ton of information there that you can click through, information on how to join, Bible studies, giving, everything you could possibly want to know or get connected with is there. So please check us out at fbca.org slash hello. Awesome, awesome. Well, this uh, June and July have been a summer of recreation for us. And Luke, the people that have been responsible for that are right here with us. Tara Toms, Brian Sepulveda are uh, leading our activities ministry and they've been uh, responsible for packaging all of this together. So uh, tell us what we need to know. So we've actually got one more week to get all your points in. Um, so for people who have been doing this since July, you've been racking up points. So we have a big award ceremony 
going on on the 31st of July. That's next Sunday night. Yeah, so you have a week to get your points in, so if that's something you want to do, it's not too late to go ahead and start doing that. Um, Brian, tell us a little bit more about the award ceremony. Yeah, we would love to have you register for that because that'll help us know how much uh, food to prepare because Very we cool. will have a meal included in that. And so please take, make sure that you do that at fbca.org slash recreation and uh, get signed up for the summer celebration. And uh, we look forward to seeing you. It'll be six o'clock. And that'll be whenever we give out all the awards for all the points and all the different categories. And we're just looking forward to a great time of celebration together. So thank you for participating in the summer of Recreate. Amen. Well, thank you, Tara. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Luke. And thank you, Online Campus, for being a part of our time together this morning. So hope you have a great week and hope we'll see you next Sunday. Blessings. See ya. Bye. Bye.